And uh, back to Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah continues with the ideas he uh, developed back in chapter 61. And there we learn that uh, righteousness and praise sprout up before the nations. Uh, this morning we learn how, or rather we might say by what instrument this happens. It is, of course, the church, the glorious bride of Christ, about whom we hear in Isaiah chapter 62. And uh, hearing about her, of course, we're hearing about ourselves. This is a passage about us, and primarily about God's promises and work in us as church. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege again it is we acknowledge to be a part of this church. Uh, you might have uh, chosen to delight in the Alps because you made those and they're beautiful. You might have chosen to take delight in the flowers and the, the beauty of, of uh, foliage that you have made and uh, all manner of things you might have chosen to, to make your delight in the apple of your eye, but you chose the church. Father, what a privilege it is to be the apple of thine eye. And now we pray that you would impress that upon our hearts. Speak to us for your servants. Your church is listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 62, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of the Lord. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land, married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed 
to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. The Apostle Paul, who was a big fan, by the way, of Isaiah and an avid reader of his prophecy, knew what to do with this message. Uh, Some people read the book of Ephesians and imagine that Paul came up with that uh, whole Christ and his bride, uh, the church metaphor on his own. No, he didn't. He, He inherited it long before Paul was even born. Uh, God had been describing the relationship between himself and the church as a relationship of marriage, of the divine husband and the earthly wife. There are a couple of particular difficulties, a few of them actually for us, uh, that meet us upon reading this uh, passage or the parallel in Paul's letter, in which you might remember he says that uh, Christ is washing his bride, the church, with the water of the word, so that he might present himself to her, her, her to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle. One of those difficulties uh, is faced particularly by the males here, by the, the men. And speaking for the men, I think it's safe to say that, that we've grown quite accustomed to the Bible addressing uh, Christians as sons. And uh, we're quite content, because it's uh, God who wrote it, that the Bible should include in words like sons, his daughters, as well. Uh, Naturally, uh, we men have no problem with what might sometimes have been an issue, maybe even a struggle, uh, for you ladies to, to find yourselves in passages like, God is treating you as sons, or... um, uh, Act like men, be strong. Uh, But in a passage like this one today, uh, we men get to feel something of what uh, you ladies must, uh, something of the struggle maybe that you've had. What we're described here is bride. Uh, Something we men can't uh, quite uh, wrap our minds around. In fact, one of you men here confided in me a year or two Ago, that it, you had a downright difficult time thinking of yourself as part of the bride of Christ. And I hadn't thought about it, frankly, at least not very carefully before then, but uh, I've given your comment a lot of thought sense, and, and I've come to agree. Another difficulty we face with a passage like this one is the fact that it, as with so much of the Bible, it is written to the corporate church. As Christians, who also happen to live in America uh, and who have breathed her radically individualistic air very, very deeply, uh, we don't think very well in corporate terms. Uh, Corporate prayers and worship, for example, are passe and they're a thing of the past and and, uh, a bit awkward. They're not... uh, Not so natural anymore in a Christian culture that thinks and even worships much more in terms uh, these days of Jesus 
and me. Uh, so, thinking of ourselves the way that God thinks of us and the way he looks at the church as a, as a corporate body uh, uh, makes it difficult for us. It makes us want to turn passages like, uh, passages like this into strictly individualistic uh, applications or individual applications, which is exactly what many pastors have done with this uh, text. Which is not to say, of course, that there are not individual applications to be made and that will be made. Perhaps the greatest struggle for us is to look around us uh, in the pews. And then even more at the one who at this moment is sitting in my seat. And uh, looking in, in, at the state of the church, particularly in our place and, and time and day, and, and seeing... What God has described here, you know, scandal-ridden and divided and secularized, conformed to the world so terribly much as the church, at least in America today, is, uh, we read this passage and we scratch our heads and say, is he looking at us? Uh, are we looking at the same church? Uh, we know the church. And we're not altogether certain that these auspicious promises and these uh, great and almost overwhelming realities he describes here are, are true. The same thing happens to me and maybe you too in reading Paul in Ephesians. Holy? You know, without spot or, or wrinkle or blemish? Are we, are we talking about the same church here? Some of you may remember... When Patricia McGurr's legend, Johnny Lingo's Eight Cow Wife, appeared in Woman's Day magazine in November 1965, or may have read the condensed version in Reader's Digest a couple of uh, decades ago, or maybe you've even seen the, the cheesy movie uh, based on the semi-cheesy story, uh, most of you probably have not, so I'm going to make bold to summarize it for you. In, in her story, she writes of a young American explorer as he was traveling to the Kiniwada Island of the Pacific. He kept hearing about a local man from a neighboring island uh, named Johnny Lingo, well-known and highly respected through the islands for his skills, his intelligence, his savvy as a, as a trader, uh, one of the sharpest in the islands, yet... Uh, what everyone related to this uh, American trader was most adamantly uh, this, that Johnny Lingo gave eight cows for his wife. A couple of days later, he had opportunity to travel to the island of Nirabandi where Johnny lived. And on his sail there, the traveler asked the, the captain of the boat about him. And the captain replied, he's a, a most respected man in all the land, the wealthiest and most intelligent. Everyone seeks counsel from him, but, but Johnny is best known these days for one thing. And that is that five months ago, Johnny came to Kiniwada and found himself a wife. And he gave her father eight cows for her. And the American traveler knew enough about island marriage customs to be uh, duly impressed. Cows were given to the family of a bride uh, by a potential husband, prospective husband, as a, as a dowry. A dowry of you know, two or three cows was average 
And uh, for four or five cows, uh, you could net a stunning wife of uh, near royal status. He mused aloud, therefore, eight cows. She must be breathtakingly gorgeous. The response from the captain was unexpected. He simply said this, well, she's not ugly, but uh, calling her plain would definitely be a compliment. (laughs) She's skinny, and she walks with her shoulders hunched and her head ducked. She's scared of her own shadow. Her father was afraid he wouldn't be able to marry her off at all. Instead of being stuck with her, he got eight cows for her. The price has never been paid before. No one knows why he did it, and everyone wonders. But Johnny simply approached her father and said, One day, father uh, of Sarita, I offer you eight cows for your daughter. And the traveler was now overwhelmed with curiosity about this local man of mythic proportion, and so he finally arrived at Johnny Lingo's home and was immediately impacted by his seriousness and intelligence and gently earned command of others' respect. As they sat together in his house, engrossed in conversation, the American answered some questions about his journey and, and the stories he had heard which led him to seek out Johnny Lingo. What do people say about me which leads you here, he asked. They say you are the most brilliant, respected, and wealthy man in the islands, but they also wonder endlessly why your marriage settlement was an unheard of eight cows. They ask that. Everyone in Kiniwata and Nurabandi knows about the eight cows. His chest expanded with pleasure and satisfaction. Always and forever, when they speak of marriage settlements, it will be remembered that Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for Sarita. So that's the answer, thought the traveler, the young explorer, vanity. But just then, Sarita entered the room to place flowers on the table, and she stood still for a moment to smile at her husband and and then left. She was the most achingly beautiful woman imaginable. The lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her chin, the sparkle in her eyes, her dress, her hair, all spelled out self-confidence And pride. Not an arrogant and haughty pride, mind you, but a confident inner beauty that radiated in her every moment. She was stunning. The American turned back to Johnny in disbelief. She's gorgeous. Obviously, this this isn't the one that everyone is talking about. She can't be the Sarita you married in Kiniwata. There's only one Sarita. Perhaps she doesn't look the way you expected. Do you think eight cows was too many? Johnny's smile was knowing. No, but how can she be so different from the way they described her? Johnny said, think about how it must make a woman feel 
to know her husband paid a very low dowry for her. It must be insulting to her to know that he places such little value in her. Think about how she must feel when the other women women boast about the high prices their husbands paid for them. It must be embarrassing for her. I would not let this happen to my Sarita. So you paid eight cows just to make your wife happy? Well, of course I wanted Sarita to be happy, but there's more to it than that. You say she is different from what you expected. That is true. Many things can change a woman. There are things that happen on the inside and things that happen on the outside. Sarita believed she was worth nothing. Now she knows she is worth more than any other woman on the islands. It shows, doesn't it? Then you wanted, I wanted to marry Sarita. She's the only woman I love. But, the American was close to understanding, but he finished softly, I wanted an eight cow wife. Jesus did not want an eight-cow wife. He wanted a one-lamb wife. He didn't pay merely an exorbitant price. He gave an inestimable price for his bride, the church. Which brings me to the first of three points. First, God redeemed us, his church. He bought us at the price of his own son and rescued us. We were lost. What today is the church, the Bible itself describes as having been an idolatrous and adulterous harlot. The prophets, including Isaiah, and the passages we've seen over the past year and a half, were not overstating the case, not one ounce, not one bit. She has chased after her lovers in every direction of all sorts. Hosea's marriage to unfaithful Gomer was just a live illustration of what most of God's prophets had to show the church in words, held as a mirror up to her by which She was to see herself for the prostitute that she was. She was not merely skinny with hunched shoulders like Sarita. She was, we were, a people filthy and unclean and intractably rebellious in our sin. And along comes the Savior, along comes the Bridegroom in all of His beauty and glory and splendor and purity and holiness and says, I will buy her. I will pay the price for her even to the shedding of my own blood on the cross and wonder of wonders, that's exactly what He did. While we were still his enemies, 
how we were still running around in unfaithfulness. Christ died for us. His church. His bride. By his own death and triumphal resurrection from the Getty, again from the dead, he, he pulled us out of the gutter of our sin and shame. And he married us. He redeemed us. And in the process, second, he renamed us. When, when Debbie and I were married, I asked her if it bothered her and give up her, her name and take on a new name. You know how active a feminist she can be. Not one bit, she said. She'd spent years trying to spell Aquiline for everybody. And uh, now she was glad to have the name, simpler name, Burkett, which as it turns out, she's been spelling for people ever since we married. Of course, uh, the point of taking a husband's name is uh, to express the connection between them, the bond of matrimony. God goes even further. He renames us, and the very names he gives us bespeak that bond. Verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. It's a beautiful set of, of Hebrew words in a row. He says we were Azuba, we were deserted, we were Shamama, we were desolate, but now we are Hepzibah, delighted in by him. We are Beulah, married. Later on in verse 12, more names. They shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, sought out, city not forsaken. Like Sarita in the story, the reason the church is not forsaken, the reason we are not forsaken is because that our husband, because our husband, in our case God himself, has sought us out and has done so not merely from one island from another, one canoe, you know, paddle, across some water to another island, but from the heights and the glories and the splendors of heaven itself to earth and all of its ignominy and humiliation, even when we in the church curled in on ourselves, totally bereft of any ounce of attractiveness, in fact, quite the opposite, plain would have been a compliment when we had no intention to seek him. The reason we're called the holy people is not because we have set ourselves apart from the world, but because God has set us apart from the world. It's a fitting name because it's the reality of it. He set us apart with the sign and seal of baptism. He has gathered us around his royal table to feast on holy food. Our very identity has been changed, fundamentally changed, transformed, in fact, so that now we bear the name of Christ. Christian is our new name by which he knows his church.
He redeemed us. He renamed us. Third, amazingly, wonderfully, he rejoices in his church. Did you notice that little detail in verse 3? Before you look, answer me this. Where do you put a crown? Put a crown, of course, on your head, right? Or you have someone else put a crown. Someone else puts a crown on your head. Where is the crown of the church? Where is that to be found? In his hand. Why? Why would he hold the crown in his hand? Why? To be admired and cherished. Now take a look. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. God loves to look at his church, to admire his church. Now, how can he do that? There are days when you can hardly look at the church. Days when, truth be told, you rather despise the church and, in fact, would just as soon walk away from the church. God loves to look at the church and even rejoices in her. Verse 4, the Lord delights in you. How can he do that? Because when he looks at her, when he looks at us, he sees his own holiness. He sees a people set apart by his grace, washed by the blood of his Son. He sees a people who are transformed by his mighty power, the righteousness of Christ in them. That's what he sees. That's also, by the way, where the analogy of the eight-cow wife starts to break down. Uh, it is not that God merely builds our self-esteem uh, by paying an extravagant price so that our dropping heads rise and our hunched shoulders are put in place. It's not that we change ourselves at all. It is that he changes us. This is a... This is a supernatural work of transformation. And the gospel not only tells us good news, it transforms us, it recreates us, it makes of us a church that Christ wants us, wants his church to be. He wants a one lamb church. The bride is beautiful to him. He is able to rejoice in her with uh, because... He, because the Lamb of God washes her with the word and has made a thing of beauty out of the church, beautiful in his eyes, even if you can't quite make it out with yours. You, dear flock, are his trophy. You are the crown in his hand. You are the bride that the groom loves 
to take and show off. If you could look through his eyes, you'd see it. For right now it's still hidden from human view, but the day is coming when even the world will see it, because that's God's invincible plan. Verse 1, for Zion's sake I will not keep silent, for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and the kings your glory. Some of you would be glad to stop right there on that note. But others of you, I know, want some application. You want something to do with all of this information come Monday morning. And um, so for you, I have two brief points. Rest on God and give God no rest. First, rest on God. What I mean is this. Rely on his grace to do this. You cannot change yourself. The church cannot change herself, cannot wash herself. You cannot purify yourself any more than a leopard can change his spots. God must do it. And God does it. Jesus washes you with the water of his word. The God who makes us Holy has set us apart with signs and seals of his sacraments. He feeds us. He marks us. Rest on him to do this for his church. Then second, give God no rest. God has set watchmen in Jerusalem who should never be silent, we read in this chapter. Why not? What are they doing? Why should they never be silent? Well, they're crying out to God, verse 6, putting the Lord in remembrance until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise on the earth. Most of my commentaries say that these are the ministers of the church, pastors who are faithful to watch and pray. I won't disagree with that, but I don't think we should limit it to ministers alone. You, dear flock, should give God no rest. What a strange thing to say. Don't let God rest. Persevere in prayer. Wrestle with God. Knock and knock and knock and knock at the door until he do it, until his church is the praise of all the earth, and he said it will be. That is a prayer that is sure to be answered. It is simply to ask and ask and ask again. Well, we the church have already asked, even this morning. And it is to ask what we ask every Wednesday evening in this house of prayer. We come, we are watchmen on the wall on Wednesday night, those of you who come. And may God bring more of you to be watchmen on the walls. That's what we do Wednesday night. We pray for the church. We pray for the kingdom to be advanced, for her fame to be known throughout the land. 
It is, I say, to pray what we prayed even this morning, but to pray it every day. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.